You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast. It's Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here in the month of February to talk about the work of Casey Lemons. It is the director's 60th trip around the sun. Happy trip around the sun, Casey Lemons. Um, and hers is a career that um, has been, I think, unheralded coming out of the 90s she's the director of eve's bayou and uh caveman's valentine and talk to me and black nativity and harriet we're going to focus on three of those five main titles from casey lemons today and we are psyched to have uh dr christina baker on the program who edited a book of interviews with casey lemons uh last year so to give us some more context Casey Lemons, in coming out in 97 and making Ease Bio, she's one of the very first black women filmmakers to, to make a theatrically released movie in the U.S. Um, but I think, yeah, her work does almost tend toward the old school in that way of trying to be very involving and trying to be um, very epic. Um, and I, I hope she can make movies for for decades more and and kind of stay at that she's also i think a very like versatile dramatist like i see someone who is really trying to connect the allegorical and the political through when she's working at her best um like really well drawn characters so whether she's in um you know kind of a southern gothic magical realist mode in eve's bayou or um a kind of daring urban mystery in Caseman's Valentine or, um, you know, a biopic that in Talk to Me doesn't really even feel like a biopic for a lot of it. Um, she's really trying to get you to see, of course, what these characters represent. I think that she's always interested in that in making films primarily about black life, but uh, rarely while actually sacrificing the characters themselves from being interesting. Right. You know, of course, the obvious thing, too, is that all three of these movies, especially, are interested in a kind of myth-making. You know, there's the myth-making around the idea of, like, what it means to be a father in the South. Uh, There's the myth-making around a truth-teller, like a speaker to power. Uh, And then, of course, like, one of our most famous American icons in Harriet Tubman. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... Christina Baker has her own theory about what unifies the work of Casey Lemon. So to to learn a little bit more about the filmmaker before we dive in, let's uh, go to the conversation with Christina. And as always, we want to remind you that Be Real is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find shows like The Fourth Wall and The Playlist Podcast. Subscribe and download wherever you might get your shows, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Now let's talk to Christina Baker.
Our guest today is an associate professor of critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California, Merced. Last year, she edited a book of interviews with Casey Lemons in the Conversations with Filmmakers series, and she also wrote about Lemons in depth in her book, Contemporary Black Women Filmmakers and the Art of Resistance. Professor Christina Baker, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you very much for that very warm, very kind welcome. I'm so happy to be here talking about Casey Lemons. I love her work. This is not to to put you on the spot, but just to kind of to see what, what pops into your mind. If, if we just say Casey Lemons film, is there any specific quality or touch or perspective that jumps into your head? Definitely. And I've, I've thought about this a lot. And um, I mean, there, there is, you know, as you hinted, you know, it, it can be hard to really pinpoint something because there is a lot. Um, and she's had such a, a long and prolific kind of career. But I really see her work um, from, you know, Eve's Bayou um, to the most recent film, Harriet, as being very uh, poetic. And so that's the kind of word, that's the word that comes to mind when I think about uh, Casey Lemon's films, poetic. Poetic, I love that. Um, does that link into the, the language for you or the pacing or the way she structures theme? What, what part feels, what, what's poetic? Yeah, I feel like when I've, so when I've read interviews from her and even, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a chance to interview her um, myself. And so I think that the way that she sees the world and I think the way that it sort of comes through in the films is that there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of metaphors. And so for me, you know, there's, it's, um, it's something that for me, I link it very much to, to poetry. And so there's a beauty to it. And there's a way of seeing the world that goes beyond the, the sort of practical, um, obvious, you know, way of seeing it. And so that's how I sort of get, you know, the, the poetic aspect from, from the films. Of the five Black women directors who you spotlight in your previous book, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Christina, I think Eve's Bayou is the earliest film from any of them. The others, I think, being Dee Reese, Ava DuVernay, Gina Prince-Blythewood, and Tony Hamilton. I think Eve's Bayou is the earliest. Um, I was trying to think of um, Black American women who directed films before Casey Lemons, Julie Dash and Kathleen Collins. Um, so I wondered if you could speak to a, um, the landscape for a, a black woman directing a studio film in 1997. Mm. Yeah, that was really the beginning. Um, that was the beginning of, of it. You know, you mentioned uh, Kathleen Collins, who I think it's really wonderful that there's a lot more recognition now. Unfortunately, you know, after um, she's no longer here to really um, personally um, you know, see the the fruits of that labor. But yeah, I think that, you know, Kathleen Collins, she made a film that I that I think is a wonderful, um, you know, it's a great and important film, but it wasn't released widely theatrically at the time. Um, so it was with Julie Dash's uh, Daughters of the Dust, the first African-American woman, um, as you mentioned, to have a theatrically released film. And, you know, and Julie Dash is someone who, has, I mean, she's continued to work since then, but she also has talked about the fact that when she had, you know, that, um, you know, that idea to make a film, a feature film for Daughters of the Dust, she really faced so much, um, 
so much resistance from Hollywood executives, studio executives, as far as getting support. And so Julie Dash really went through a lot of different sources of support. It was very much, you know, an independent um, a film that she she financed by through her own work. You know, she didn't find a big studio to support that um, film. And so, so I think that that sort of experience of not necess- not really having much support during that 1990s period where there were a few other black women who had films in theaters um, was very common. And so Casey Lemons in 1997 with Eve's Bayou talked about the fact that um, the success of the film was, was something that really surprised um, people. And this was something that, that, really nobody expected because this was a first of all a first time you know director and a black woman director and you know and the film that she made was i think very much you know her film and and her kind of vision for what the story would look like and and it was different than what um big you know film studios supported and so the fact that it did so well um, surprise people. And so during that, that time, it was really the beginning of, of, um, I think Hollywood sort of getting (laughs) to sort of see that a film that was directed by a black woman, um, would actually have support from audiences. Um, so yeah, the, the 1990s was really the start of that. Casey Lemon says in, in one of the interviews in the book that you edited that she came to view all of the art she created as a form of protest art and the the subtitle for for your book uh or for the for the previous book was is looking at the contemporary black women filmmakers through quote the the art of resistance how do you see um ideas of protest or just a stance of protest coming through in eve's bayou Yeah. So I think that's a good question because I think that when, you know, when most people hear the word protest, um, a single image or a single idea comes to mind that there's someone who's, you know, out there in the streets holding up a sign and that's the only way to, to sort of protest um, something or to, you know, advocate for change. But, but, you know, I think that that's what, you know, protesting is about pushing for sort of this social transformation or pushing for a change. And so Eve's Bayou is a film, and and this is something that Casey Lemons has pointed to um, in interviews, but it's a film that has a predominantly African-American black woman cast. And it was something that, um, and she also points out that the film did not have any, and I love this sort of line, it didn't have any sort of hot 20 year olds. (laughs) So it was sort of, yeah. And so it was a film that that didn't fit the sort of Hollywood conventions for, you know, for who should be this sort of star, star who should star in films um, or what woman, have looked like in films. Um, and so I think that in insisting that, you know, she was going to have a 10 year old, you know, a 10 year old girl, black girl, be then sort of the storyteller, the center of Eve's Bayou. This was something that was very unique. And so she's giving this sort of um, agency or empowerment to this young 
black girl. And I think that is, you know, that's revol- that's different. That's revolutionary. And so she's sort of placing the power in, in, um, in someone who largely um, would be sort of disenfranchised or, you know, or would not have a lot of power in society. And, um, and, you know, and she also talks about the fact that for Eve's Bayou, again, really a place, a space where it was a Creole um, Black community. And when she was asked, apparently by a lot of people to have, you know, white characters somehow inserted into the story, um, or even she said at one point, you know, people asked, well, what about a white racist character to add that element? And she really, you know, pushed back on that idea. And and obviously Eve's Bayou is, you know, it's a self-contained um, Creole Black community. And there's no additional story about, you know, racism um, and trying to envision, you know, what, how a sort of white character would look like and what that would mean for this story. It would really change um, what the story of Eve's Bayou is. And so by insisting that there was this, you know, town, um, this town that was this self-sustaining sort of community and they, you know, they had their own, there were problems within the family, you know, the town had their own complications, you know, but, but still it was a town that existed and that had a lot of joy to it as well. Um, and it was not depicted as being dependent or somehow reactive to, um, you know, the white uh, community. And, and so that, in a way, was a form of protest. I guess one of the ideas I wanted to bounce off you was, I feel like a lot of times white film institutions, um, or predominantly white film institutions or historically white film institutions, have a way of um, taking a lot of black films as like documentary like thank like so sort of self-congratulatory like well thank you thank you for showing our institution something real or something quote-unquote important and I wonder if what feels might still feel really special about Eve's Bayou is that it's it's so clearly richly fictional mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah I mean I think that's a really great point in that there's I think especially you know when we think about the films that did well like um, in the around that era 1990s um, like Boys in the Hood and you know um, there was Menace to Society and you know and those films got a lot of attention because they were very much marketed with this idea that you know this is the sort of gritty reality um, of black urban communities and um, yeah and that was so that's one you know one perspective you know one type of one way to tell a, a story that has black characters and so that's I think also an interesting kind of story to tell but um, but when only one kind of story is told as conveying the real, you know, quote unquote, real, um, realness of black life, then that very much distorts, um, of course, that reality is very complex. And, you know, and of course, there's a lot of different experiences for, for all groups. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that Eve's Bayou is both, you know, very, it's, it's a fictional story, um, but it also, it was generated from some of the memories from Casey Lemons and, you know, and some of the things that, you know, that she sort of um, had in her mind, you know, that had kept, that had stayed with her from her childhood. And so 
So she doesn't in any way say this is a, you know, an autobiographical story. She doesn't, you know, the film wasn't marketed as real life. Um, but there's, there's some element of truth to sort of what she, some of what she experienced in her life um, to that story. Yeah, let's jump ahead to um, to talk to me and to Harriet, if you don't mind. Um, both of which, I guess, strictly speaking, are, are biopics of a kind. Um, how do you see Casey Lemons um, making that form her own? Yeah, so, well, definitely, you know, as we were just talking about the, the fact that there's an emphasis on the relationship between the characters. So with Talk to Me, um, you know, certainly it's it's about, you know, the career of this, um, you know, radio host and, you know, and the, you know, and there's this sort of backdrop of, you know, the period and the, the movement that was going on. But, you know, what's really central to that story is the relationship between Dewey and Petey. And, Pete. and so, um, so it's just this, yeah, I think that the, um, that's something that really, I think, draws people in or drew me into that, to that movie. And, um, and so I think, yeah, seeing the development of that kind of relationship on the screen um, is something that, that I think is something really great about the film. And it relates to, you know, I think the ability of Casey Lemons to really depict those relationships well in Eve's Bayou. And then also in, um, you know, you mentioned Harriet. And so the, so yeah, I think Casey Lemons depicts uh, Harriet Tubman as really being driven by the relationship to her family, you know, and to to her um to her husband and then there's the relationship between her and uh, marie and you know and that that kind of connection there and and so i think that you can see in the films or i see in the films that relationship is very important um in the films of casey lemons and and you know and i think that that makes a lot of sense given some of the things that that she said about her career and how she's really found support and how she's been able to really kind of continue in her career. And, and she, you know, she gives a lot of credit to her own family and the fact that, you know, her husband, um, she's, she's mentioned, um, has been very supportive of her career and, you know, and so they've worked together so, so much, pretty much, you know, every movie. And now um, we also see that she's brought in, you know, her, her son who is, you know, creating his own career um, in Hollywood. And so, so I think that if we look at the films, but then also just, you know, some of what, some of what um, we can see about her life that, that I think that the relationships are, are something that are very valuable for her. Looking ahead here, I know she's been working for a while on the uh, Madam CJ Walker miniseries. Um, and I was reading she she adapted um, Charles Blow's novel into like an opera libretto for Terrence Blanchard, which is wild. Um, but I'm just curious of all the things that she's she's done these you know novelistic magical realism and 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 biopics and musicals. Um, as a observer and a fan yourself, is there is there something you would like to see her apply her talents to? 
Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I'm definitely a fan and I, you know, and she has a, a history in her career of, of certainly centering and um, telling stories about black women. And I can, I can certainly see her continuing to do that. And I think that, you know, that that's um, a wonderful thing. And I think certainly there's a lot more room um, for more stories that are, that are centering black womanhood in ways that are unique and interesting and complex and beautiful and messy, you know, and all, there's a lot of possibilities certainly that are still out there. And, and I think I, um, I'm, I think I'm a little bit of a sentimental person. And so I was, you know, I was, um, we were talking about the importance of relationships um, earlier. And so I think, you know, I love seeing stories that center on some sort of connection, you know, romantic connection or a friendship sort of connection. And, um, and so I would, you know, I'd love to see more of those stories. Well, Christina, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Christina for sharing her, her voice and perspective and her, her vast research on Casey Lemons with, with the show. That was, it was great to have her on. Um, Noah, you want to dive into our review slash reappraisal of Eve's Bayou circa 1997? Yes, I would love that. I'll start with reading the synopsis. As you always do. What did little Eve see and how will it haunt her? Husband father and womanizer Luis Baptiste is the head of an affluent family, but it's the women who rule this gothic world of secrets, lies, and mystic forces. Wow. This is a pretty good, it's a very selling IMDb synopsis here. I, they usually don't do the rhetorical questions. That's what draws me in. Memory is a selection of images. Some elusive. Others printed indelibly on the brain. Daddy loves you so much. I know. We'll dance at every party. Each image is like a thread. Each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. When I first met Lewis, I said to myself, he's a healer, he'll take care of me. Do you still love her? Men fought each other for the privilege of speaking her name. And the tapestry tells a story. And I find out he's just a man. You're in trouble. They're really mad. Who, them? <laughs> they always mad. And the story is our past. I'll never forgive you if you drive him away. I'm not your damn patient. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. I saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. Don't get lost. What's wrong with her? I suppose actually a little more context that we need to give is that through the 80s and 90s, Casey Lemons is an actor. She is in School Days. She's in Candyman. Um, she is most famously helps her character, helps Clarice Starling arrive at the aha moment that uh, um, Buffalo Bill covets what he sees every day, um, which kind of cracks that movie open. Casey Lemons, by the way, has that great, once um, she finds out that Hannibal Lecter has uh, escaped in another man's face. She's got that great run down the Quantico hallway where she is freaking out as well she should be. Um, well, 
Hannibal's on the loose, what would you do? I would run like hell after letting that payphone dangle. Um, I don't want to besmirch the acting career because Casey Lemons doesn't. But the one thing that she does acknowledge that I think is kind of indisputable is that these are not great parts. Candyman is the one for me too, where I'm like, this is a like a, a black horror movie, like set uh, in a slice of black life, and she's still just playing the best friend. Really, Virginia Madsen is the one who's gonna get to have the final showdown with Candyman. Right. Are we sure about this? So you have someone who I think has been relegated to pretty like stereotypical supporting parts for the better part of 10 or 15 years while she's also been writing in the studio system for movies and tv and ease bayou comes about in 97 as casey lemons tells it as a something that is totally from her mind and imagination a classic kind of lonely desk drawer script where she had no real regard for quote-unquote rules of script writing um you know there's it's not necessarily there's there are elements of the movie that come from things she imagined in childhood but she's not from louisiana um she never lived in louisiana to my knowledge um it's just a pretty richly imagined movie and a classic example of like i think of her making the movie that she would want to see that doesn't yet exist absolutely yeah but it doesn't, and that's so interesting because it, like, yes, it does break a lot of narrative rules, but at the same time, like, this movie feels very of 1997. Like, it feels like that kind of, we were texting about this yesterday, like, it has that Southern women, like, actually pulling the strings of their families, like, despite their either totally idiotic or, like, potentially uh, predatory masculine figures in their lives. and And even it's got that sort of you know, Sandlot or My Girl or kind of thing of like, remember that thing that happened to us that was traumatic when we were kids kind of feel to it uh, that brings us in. And it's got that too, like the, this is also right around the time of like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil where like, you know, they were casting big people to be like sort of these Southern gentlemen. So it's like, I love that the the entry point here is, is is the titular bayou to just kind of set the stage for like what does this place feel like because it seems like the South definitely has a renaissance at least in like the popular imagination in terms of films of this time. So this movie opens at a party, which I think is a fantastic way to open. Really, maybe any movie, but especially like your epic family drama. Um, because oh, in, yeah. in the course of like 10 minutes, you get to see how every character from, uh, mother and father, Roz and Lewis to the, the three kids, Eve, who's Journey Smollett, who's our, who's our lead, uh, little Poe, and then Cecily played by Megan Good. You get to see how they all present or want to present, um, in the community at their happiest. And then as the night wears on and the liquor runs quicker you see oh my you see what's you know you see the facades fall off um it's such a great characterization tool yes it's a cool narrative way into it uh too because then that's the sort of raucousness of this party you know leads to you know this this drunken mistake the inciting trauma for this film which is samuel l jackson hooking up um, with Maddie Moreau, 
But of course, the titular Eve, played by Journey Smollett, witnesses this thing. And what occurs is a step-by-step examination of the system and the fear that exists to, you know, kind of spackle over uh, sexually adjacent traumas. Right, right. Um, And the uncertainty. Um, Yeah. So much so that, like, various times in the movie, there are different versions of that event playing out, the her catching her father uh, and his lover, um, who, yeah, his, that's not, the, the, what she sees is him cheating on on their mom. Um, and the mom, of course, played by the brilliant Lynn Woodfield. Um, but yeah, so there's this the scene where Megan Good's like, that's not how it happened. Like, dad was telling a joke and, and he slipped and and, you know, and that, and then seeing that play out too is like, it's kind of harrowing. Like this movie takes it that first turn away from like, oh, these are people just hanging out, having a good time at this party to darker movie about child who sees something they shouldn't movie. Yeah. You know, a lot of, you know, going back to like To Kill a Mockingbird, um, which also yes. is in this milieu. Um the child as observer and the child as the POV character um, is interesting. And I think it's also, you know, a pretty classic thing. And, and, and Little Journey Smollett, who I think is maybe, what, 10 or 11 when this movie is made? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, she is a captivating and earnest and watchful. Everything you'd want, I think, from a child performer at this age. Right. Um, but what I like is that the movie actually takes a step beyond just being in the witness stance to it becomes a movie about how when you are that age in your family system like a lot of the feelings that you carry are not even your own like they're not even really your like authentic self-generating feelings it's just like it's your first blush with like how to have like social allegiances in a world and how to like step into different roles of of um you know defendant and prosecutor um yes and i think this movie's brilliant at that weirdly i think the note that the movie ends on which is just such haunting ambiguity i don't know if we we won't spoil the end for a little while here um but it's almost like that's the first moment in eve's life where it's like now now you'll decide what to do and who you are because everything up to this point has frighteningly enough like not really even been your decision yeah i mean definitely and that's just like part of the you know the trauma of being a kid it's just how much influence you have to deal with in order to survive you know and where this movie is i think it's most exciting is seeing these kids like call bullshit on their parents right you know uh journey and megan good uh, sort of go back and forth being like you guys are insane and the things you want us to believe are not believable and we don't accept this. But then it just being like, I don't know, like this is the way we do things around here. Mentality just kind of oppresses them all. Mm, mm-hmm. Like even in the face of that, of those like childhood, like, don't you see that our dad's a creep? Right. Yeah. Let's, can we talk about Samuel L. Jackson? Of course. I think this movie, I don't know. And this is just my personal 
feeling about the matter. Samuel L. will have to forgive me. But I don't know if I think of him as like the level of handsome that this role kind of requires. Like he's a tremendous actor. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But I don't know that I've ever thought of him that way as someone who's like the doctor going around and like is so handsome and, you know, can sort of woo anyone and people are turning there. Women can't even cross the room without staring at him for a few minutes. Do you find him more? Maybe, maybe you find him more attractive than I do. I I I would be fine with that. I don't actually think it has anything to do with, um, you know, a sort of objective attractiveness meter. I think that this is a character who has so fully internalized and weaponized his professional life and his charm. One of the best moments in the movie mm. is coming out of the carriage house where Eve has seen him cheating on her mother. And he's like, she's like, daddy, do you love mom slash what were you doing in there? And you remember what he does? He checks her, he mimes checking her pupils. It's like the good doctor, you know, through every stage of his denial. Oh, he like goes through the physical act. Yeah, he's doing like doctor stuff, which is, as the movie points out, is really um, important in this community in the 60s to have a black man be in that role. I guess he's good because he's a very unsettling performance the whole way through. Oh, yeah. Because like there's so many shots of him just like being a normal guy and like hanging up his coat after getting home. Like nothing is the matter. Right. And then I don't think I've ever seen, you know, the like a creepier Samuel L. Maybe that's what I'm feeling. Maybe I'm feeling betrayed because of his behavior towards his own daughter. Daughters, I guess, plural. But, like, especially when this movie's like, we're going there. I think that's brilliantly set up at the party, too. Because, uh, again, we, we won't spoil it for a sec here. But the, the, the specter of incestual behavior is hanging over this movie from the very first minute you see Lewis at the party in the beginning. Do that, like, yes. very kind of sexual performative Zydeco dance with, uh, with Moreau. And then right after that, he does like a a less bumpy, a far less bumpy and grindy leave room for Jesus performative dance with his eldest daughter. And you're like, okay, the the line here between these two kinds of dances was very thin. How's this guy lacking an impulse control going to keep right. that line between the two dances? Yes. And this is all, I mean, we're talking about sort of the main plot of this movie. And the other interesting part about this movie we haven't even discussed yet is the fact that it has this whole other part of it with Debbie Morgan as Mazelle, right. who is a clairvoyant. Um, and she's the, is she the sister? She's Lewis's, Lewis's sister, yeah. Lewis's sister. And so she sort of, as the mom is losing it, as the aunt, she kind of takes the titular Eve under her wing because uh, it seems like maybe Eve has a little bit of it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I like about this movie is it it leaves a lot of question as to the efficacy of whatever it is. I mean, it oh, is, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of magical realism is suggested but if you don't, if you want to read the movie as just being about 
um, hubris and the unwieldy nature of childhood, you can, if you don't, I mean, if you don't want to think that they're actually psychics, you don't have to. Um, but it's really interesting that almost no one in the, for a movie that has this much, um, kind of like, you know, do you believe in, in clairvoyance, even, even Diane Carroll, who plays Elzora, who is basically just like a voodoo priestess who lives on the swamp, even she has moments of like very clear, like in town class based pettiness toward the Batiste family. She never expresses right. like a real, I believe in this. That's interesting. Well, there is like that capitalist component of what she's doing. She like sets up at the, the local market. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah, but I think it's interesting that, you know, when this movie kind of shifts into that witches of Eastwick kind of, space that it opens up a far more bizarre and more i think interesting like i love the idea of the you know sort of like the the curse that's on her that like all of her husbands are gonna die because of like this really kind of disturbing uh moment between you know these two men fighting over her affection and then her feeling ownership of that uh yeah, the only part, to your point about maybe wishing that the B-plot was more developed, the only part of the movie that like really is a head-scratcher to me is what Vondi Curtis Hall as Julian is doing in this movie. Because he's supposed to be uh, the ant's sort of like refutation of like, it doesn't, oh, matter yeah. if, it doesn't matter if I'm 0 for 3. I've lo- I, feel, I think the line is, I've lost so much, I'm at a place where I'm actually looking for more things to lose. And she kind of believes in this like handsome stranger who comes to town. And Casey Lemons really casts Vondi in like the, I love how attractive you are, my attractive husband. You get to be (laughs) just this hot character. Um, But there's, yeah, there's a scene where Julian and then um, their uncle, who has a sort of rather severe disability, are just kind of like sitting on the porch watching people. And I'm like, hey... There's the two characters in the movie that the movie doesn't have any idea what to do with, sitting together on the porch. Let's tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then give Eve's bio a rating. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I am... Definitely not alone or especially original in like, you know, watching this movie for the first time 23 years after it's come out. It's it's definitely like developed, you know, it made $14 million back in the day, but um, it's specifically the kind of movie that 
as as more and more rightful attention is paid to um, black filmmakers whose careers were largely overlooked, like this is the kind of movie that people really kind of hold up on a year by year basis of like we do not talk enough about Eve's bio. I would completely agree with this. I think um, the way it's kind of like I talked about with Silence of the Lambs. I really love the way that is not overly concerned with genre convention and wants to go wherever and with whomever it finds the most interesting. One of the things we haven't talked about is that there are some really funny moments of um, kind of twisted, dark comedy. Like, what Journey Smollett's funniest line of the movie is, like, these kids are all, like, Shakespeare devotees, and they're trapped in the house because... um, uh, Elzora has told Roz, the mom, that like one of the, somebody's going to get hit by a car, and mom's like, "All right, well then the kids are inside all summer," and Journey's is like, "Listen, we're through all the tragedies, and we're almost on to the goddamn comedies," which is a perfectly placed line because this is like the moment in the movie where it becomes a super dark comedy when they weirdly end up celebrating the death of some other child in town who's been right. hit by this car so now they can go outside which is another kind of thing about like the cruelty of children who don't don't know what they're doing yet um i think this is a really good movie i'm gonna give it a good good yeah i agree with you i there's something really amazing uh about the the different genres this movie is able to play in you know like it does have dark comedy it does have sort of that magical realist almost fantasy to it and it's also just like a compelling human drama about how this family is like built on lies and uh, one additional lie is too much and the camel falls over that's right there's so much shattered glass in this movie and not without symbolic import yeah, absolutely. And my my quibbles are are just that. Uh, nothing to to sink the movie. I, this was a fun one to watch. Sweet. So before we get to our next full title, no, in 2000 she makes a movie called The Caveman's Valentine, again starring Samuel L. Jackson. Um which is a really interesting kind of daring movie about um this unhoused schizophrenic man who was like a music prodigy. Um, who then is trying to solve like a murder mystery um, kind of based on his paranoid visions that ends up kind of being half true. Um, this is the soloist you're talking about? <laughs> I know it sounds a lot like the soloist, um, but with but more uh, more mystery, more genre verve to it and less like Robert Downey less Jr. being like, Robert Downey Jr. I being a white, a white savior. savior. <laughs> um yeah it's it is a very imperfect movie but again it's i like to see sam jackson working with her in ways that um he is like never put to use at all in other movies um and it has some really she's very empathetic filmmaker i think like whether you think like the whole mystery conspiracy of the story holds up at all she really lets the read the viewer understand how like for this guy the homelessness in and of itself is a way of like it's easy to understand the world in a conspiratorial way when it seems like the entire world has shut you out and is so impossibly weird in like the mannerisms it uses to shut you out. It's an interesting movie if people want to want to check it out. Great. You want to talk about Talk to Me? 
No, uh, talk to me, question mark? 2007, the story of Washington, D.C. radio personality Ralph P.D. Green, an ex-con who became a popular talk show host and community activist in the 1960s. This is the Nighthawk Show, rocking your radio on the sounds of soul. At a radio station, in a time of change. He's always been a station of the people. We can't become the establishment or they'll turn on us. One man who had something to prove. You think you can turn us around? Yes, sir, I do. Found what he was looking for in the most unlikely place. You see, I've always had a special gift. P.O.P. Pissed off people. Sometimes I feel like I should have a Ph.D. in P.O.P. <laughs> this is the cat that I've been writing you about. Your brother said y'all need a new DJ at that radio station. Hey, I'm your man. You're in prison. It's a minor challenge. May I help you? Tell your boss that Petey Green's on the scene. What is going on out here? You promised me a job as soon as I got out the joint. Oh my God, he's a convict. Ex-convict. Wake up, damn it. Petey Green's on the scene. No. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Been sober five hours. Oh no. Some of my best friends is pimps, whores. Open this door. I don't want to denigrate the biopic form too much, but I think I will go ahead and offer the form, the backhanded part of this compliment. I did not realize that this was a biopic for like the first hour I was watching it, actually until the DVD I was watching skipped and I took it out of the player to clean it. And then I was like, why don't I give this movie a quick Google? I was like, oh, okay. And I think there's a point in the movie where you can actually tell that it feels that it has to commit itself to more kind of historical details. But one of the things I love about this movie is that for the first hour, it is a pretty freewheeling comedy as Petey Green um, is released. His ascension, yeah. Yeah, where he's released from jail um, and kind of takes over the world of, uh, you know, morning zoo radio in, in the DMV. Yes. Uh Yes, I I would argue that the, this movie, if, when we do get to it, its flaws are more in the construct of the genre uh, and less in like what's funny about this. Because like Don Cheadle is a very funny physical presence. I think he's proven that over and over again. Uh, you know, canonically uh, in the Ocean's Eleven movies, uh, especially where he goes the other way of having a British accent but being an American actor, uh, which I love. Uh, but this one too, like he has that kinetic energy from the jump of like literally being trapped in this space and then just being free and wearing these outrageous outfits. Um, you know, it's it's the movie has a lot of things I like about it too because you're also, you know, it's one of those movies that pokes at or, or you know posits to be like a corporate history of an entity that we only like kind of know about, which is talk radio, and so like. When you're when Petey's sort of unleashed, it would almost remind me of like Elf or something, which is like the mayhem that is incurred by this like outsider in this very rigid business structure. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and seeing that, and I think Martin Sheen as like the president is perfectly cast. Um, yeah. And then I think, and the, the chemistry too, I think, between Sheetle and Ajuafor is strong. 
you know, because you have this guy who like just wants to tie his tie tighter if possible. And then you have like, you know, Petey Green coming in in these like incredible, like extended lapeled suits and big collars and wearing a tie with no shirt. A tie with no shirt. That was great. Taraji P. Henson uh, as his long suffering girlfriend is also just that's like a miraculous performance too so much energy she's She's flying from room to room at some moments uh yeah there's a lot of comedy a lot of physical comedy here totally i mean there and there's a i think there's actually like some transcendent moments of you know it's it's all clearly leading to getting pd on the air and how's this going to work and wl wol wants they want a a new voice and the friction is that like they want this like unhinged revolutionary, you know, say it like you mean it, uh, talent, but they are not a say it like you mean it station. Um, and right. so you have this very kind of like hyped up Sorkin esque walk and talk on their way to finally put PD on the air. And the one thing I've been thinking as somebody who did 10 years of radio was like, this guy is dropping F bombs constantly. Is nobody worried that this guy is not going to be able to <laughs> to not swear on well, the Well, that's air. what she is saying. It, like, every other line is like, watch your language. In the walk and talk, finally, it pays off like a fucking slot machine um, where Sheen is just like, and watch your language. And watch your language. <laughs> <laughs> he says it yes. so many times. And then, but the other thing that I love, and this is, I think, both to Lemons's credit and to Cheadle. I mean, Cheadle really understands performance and... um you know, the ways in which people kind of get themselves up and create falseness for, um, like, when that camera is on. Like, one of my favorite um, Don Cheadle stories that he likes to tell is he was cast as Sammy Davis Jr. in, the, uh, like, a TV movie about the Rat Pack, and he w- was telling the director, like, these guys are, like, so racist to their friend Sammy, and you don't have a single moment in this movie where like that registers with Sammy at all. Like I'm going to have to insist we add that moment, which is a story I always think about. Like this is not a movie that's really overly concerned with the way that, um, that uh, white, like white power structures inflect or affect black uh, talent that much. Um, but he do- it, it does have a lot of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, Petey's just a guy, and like maybe he's not ready for this. And long before the movie puts its thumb on the Petey is not ready for this thing, you have him being really nervous on the way into the station. Yes. And the hilarity of him not being able to stop dry heaving <laughs> when he gets on the radio. That is hilarious, yes. Uh, and I think too, like going back to the point about you know, sort of responsible myth-making that Lemons has here. Like, showing those moments of, this is just a guy. Like, this is not, you know, the the characters that the culture is going to lose, like, over the course of this film. Of course, the climax being the assassination of Martin Luther King. But I think it's it's definitely on purpose that we see P.D., as clearly a man like he has these special abilities but he is still just a man uh and seeing that moment to moment and ultimately that being his his downfall uh you know there's a certain narrative irony to that for sure i think another scene that has to be shouted out because it actually really like i don't know how it hit you but it played a trick on me which is you're waiting for pd is 
we should say Petey meets Dewey, played by Shuatel Ejiofor, because Dewey is visiting his brother Mike Epps in the same prison. And Petey's like, you're going to give me a job when I get out of here, right? And Dewey's like, yeah, no, probably not. Whatever, look me up. And then Petey shows up at the station, starts protesting the station, you know, busts in. He's not getting this job. And then there's this scene where they meet at a pool hall and they, you know, they put down some money and they essentially put down the job as a bet. And I'm like, is this movie really going to like lean this hard into the contrivance of a pool bet between two fairly disconnected characters to get him this job? And it flips it 100% the other way. Um where basically Dewey has hustled Petey because um, he grew up oh, in this neighborhood yeah, yeah. at this pool bar. And he, the, the, it's not for... The job was never on the line of the pool game, but they just needed to understand each other further so that Dewey could kind of vet him as like, are you my guy? Which I think is just a great... It's a great like movie... I wish I... <laughs> it's obvious it's a movie scene, but it's like such a good movie curveball. And if anything, I kind of wished that the movie had a bit more of that. Yes. I think it's kind of weird to have a movie that's clear comp is like a good night and good luck to really not have a bigger kind of political moment to it. I mean, it has, of course, the moment where Green like calms down the like fiery temperature of the, you know, the politics in D.C. right after the assassination of MLK. But, like, the movie never proved to me that, oh, this is obviously the beginning of talk radio. Like, look how popular it is for X, Y, and Z reasons. And Mm -hmm. all we really have to prove that is Petey saying over and over again that he speaks the truth. And then, of course, people repeating that he speaks the truth. And then, like, us hearing people talking about the fact that he speaks the truth. But other than really, like, making fun of some you know, some famous music executives at the time. Like, I guess I wanted him to have that, like him versus um, McCarthy kind of thing. Like, where is his actual narrative antagonist here other than his own, like, man versus self? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm curious to know, like, just what else he what else he said on the air. And maybe the movie just doesn't want to get... Yeah, yeah. Maybe the movie just doesn't want to get into a failed sobriety shortened life story. Right. Which, you know, I can't really blame it for, but the but the detour that it takes into being like in the last half hour of like, oh, we'll just show it all through Dewey. Um, and we're like, ah. Dewey wasn't the most interesting part of this story, especially not as a solo act. And I do think it's significant that he essentially like tries to steal Petey's shtick. But there's a moment where Taraji P. Henson is just like, he's not, he's not Richard Pryor, Dewey. He's not who you want him to be. He's just a guy who likes to run his mouth and people really like to listen to that. And it feels like after that moment, the movie is kind of done with Petey, which is, unfortunate i think see i almost think the movie gives up on pd before that in the scene where dewey sits at the johnny carson desk and lets out those two really unconvincing like laughs like johnny carson laughs that moment i i i felt like i i lost my ability to suspend disbelief Mm. in that like 
it's not about this guy. Like, I think a, a, a movie that is truly about the downfall of this human focuses more on, you know, what his girlfriend wife is saying about him. The idea that, like, it is the going up this ladder so quickly that's killing him uh, and then speaking so much truth as to be so criticized by some system or like whatever it happens to be that is his that's what i'm saying he really lacks an antagonist other than himself but that's like where do you where do you you know find a climax in a narrative like that so they have to give it to dewey Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chance, can I be so forward as to say that this movie feels like a bad good? You may. I think Cheadle is hilarious enough and the physical comedy is hilarious enough that this movie, like if it were on, you know, it also has vibes of like that thing you do or walk the line or like whatever you know, sort of uh, celebrity rising adjacent story you want to come up with uh, set in the 1960s. Um, So it has that watchability to it. But yeah, ultimately, I think the ending of this movie, it just like doesn't ever kind of commit to what it is. Uh, And in that way, I think it's, it's not a wholly satisfying experience. I would agree it's not wholly satisfying. Maybe my read is slightly different in that I think it I think it commits to what it thinks it has to be, which is like this drawn out eulogy for Petey Green, which is from Dewey, which is just not not what I was enjoying about it. Again, a movie that was like essentially a very wise comedy. And I just don't know. I think it knew how to be a wise comedy for 70 minutes and definitely not 110. Um, right. Yeah, it didn't have like that last sort of cruel joke to it, which it needed. Yeah, or that last bit of, you know, take a note from Petey. Tell me something raw and unvarnished. Yeah, what can you learn, audience member, from this man? I think it ends up being like a movie that takes on Dewey's personality and Dewey's worldview, um, which is kind of sad and industry-invested and odd because the movie was about Feeney. Um, yeah. I think I'll come with you. I think Bad Good is the play. I think it's a, a movie I'm really glad we watched. I think it's a movie I will continue to think on very fondly, especially when yeah. I think about Casey Lemons and Don Cheadle. Now we pivot to the part of the program where two white guys talk about a biopic of Harriet Tubman. <laughs> Just for context sake, in, uh, in 2013, she adapts, Casey Lemons adapts a, a Langston Hughes play called Black Nativity, um, which I'm interested in seeing. It's like a holiday musical that uh, just didn't fit into our February format here. And also Harriet is, we, we, we got to go here because it, it got serious awards attention and, and made $45 million in the U.S., which is no small thing for, you know, a drama whose biggest star is Cynthia Erivo. Um, and maybe Janelle Monet. Um, but yeah, this, uh, came out in 2019. I think Cynthia Revo got a best actress nomination for it. If memory serves, uh, Noah, you want to synopsize Harriet? The extraordinary tale of Harriet Tubman's escape from slavery and transformation into one of America's greatest heroes, whose courage, ingenuity, and tenacity freed hundreds of slaves and changed the course of history. There's not much time. You got to be miles away from here for dawn. 
Where is she? Follow that north star. If they're no stars, just follow the river. Listen for them. Fear is your enemy. Whoa. Easy now. I'm gonna be free or die. I don't know if you know how extraordinary this is, but you have made it 100 miles to freedom all by yourself. Would you like to pick a new name to mark your freedom? Harriet Tubman. Those qualities, to start with the positives, are best embodied through Cynthia Revo's physical performance, which I think is yes. excellent um in this movie the uh tenacity with which she runs through the woods we've seen cynthia revo run in the movie widows in what is basically a special effect how fucking cool of a runner she is Um, she's a great runner and it happens here again where i think um i feel like some people would be like oh such a hollywood eyes they basically turn harriet tubman into a superhero i think that's frankly the most entertaining part of the movie that she just has the hat and the pistol and you know runs i think cumulatively thousands of miles over the it course seems, yeah it would seem to be the case yeah. yeah you want to see like what her uh, her pedometer uh says at the end of this thing um it's beautifully shot too um and the terence blanchard score blanchard working together with the way that lemons and john toll photograph sunrises and sunsets and rivers and it has that real hollywood like cachet to it so this movie has two acts right there's the act where harriet tubman formerly known as minty is hanging out on the plantation they try to go through legal channels to like get her and her husband and her family freed her her white slave owning family owner uh, is a bit reluctant, to say the least, uh, to let go of these humans that he has, uh, you know, as slaves. And then, I guess as, oh, the father dies, and then fucking Joe Alwyn, Taylor Swift's boyfriend's just like, hey, my dad died, maybe because of this moment you had screaming for the devil or God to kill him. Uh, so now I'm going to sell you further south where it's much less likely that you'll run from where we are in Maryland to Pennsylvania uh, to gain your freedom. Uh, so that sort of yields her initial crossing of this hundred miles uh, between a slave state and a free state. Uh, and then sort of realizing that that was easy enough. So let's go back and do it a number of more times, despite everyone around me saying Harriet, don't do that. You're going to get caught. Right. I'm not sure, however, that Harriet feels much like a human character, which is a problem not exclusive to the movie movie Harriet, but um, just a thing in very kind of high-toned biopics. Um, For sure. Would you say that at the beginning she feels very uh, brave and self-possessed and then in the middle she's very brave and self-possessed and then at the end she's very brave and self-possessed? Yes. Yeah, I think the movie does have that effort to humanize her with the whole idea of, oh, she's coming back for her husband specifically. And then he's like, you've been gone for a week. I'm remarried. Uh, 
which was like such a weird, I guess the timing of this movie didn't always make a ton of sense to me because it feels like she got to Philadelphia fairly quickly and then she got back very quickly to Maryland and then he seemed super surprised that she was there at all. But ultimately, other than that heartbreak that she goes through, which she recovers from fairly quickly, uh, there's not a lot... Like, not that her and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. need to have a romantic relationship. That's, like, maybe a little easy here. But I guess I wanted them to have more of, like, a, you know, a combative friendship that's like, we should do it this way, by the book. And she's like, nah, we got to go in there and get them all. You know, that could yield more... You know, like the Evan Rachel Wood, Jim Sturgis kind of back and forth and across the universe. Like, what an odd, incongruous reference. Well, I think it wants <laughs> a little bit of that with uh, Janelle Monet as uh, Marie Buchanan, too, who owns this boarding house in Philadelphia. And I think our guest, Christina, was like, I think that's the movie that, or that's the relationship that they're kind of trying to hang the movie on in very Casey Lemons fashion. But I just feel like a lot of the script efforts, Gregory Allen Howard wrote the script, um, who he did the script for Ali and Remember the Titans. Um, this is like familiar sort of uh, American history territory and, and civil rights territory for him um, as a writer. But I just feel like a lot of the efforts toward humanizing characters are quote-unquote humanizing them. They don't feel real. They're often given like one stereotype-busting thing that ends up in like very discourse kind of dialogue. Like the movie seems weirdly concerned with like um, free person privilege in a way that I found sort of surprising, which is not like uninteresting, but it's just sort of being like, no, it's sort of used as like no one gets to judge Harriet, especially free black people in in the North. Um, and like, yeah, just like a lot of the efforts that are made to complicate people feel like, well, there I complicated them one time. Um, you know, the yeah, this, yeah, it doesn't it does not feel organic. Well, I, and there's there's like an internal conflict of tones in this movie, too, because on one hand, you have like this very sort of. I mean, the the character of Harriet is she's she's again sort of magical uh, the way the women are in Eve's Bayou. Like she has these similar visions that allow her to like see danger coming. And like, as you said earlier, Chance, she almost becomes a superhero. But on the other hand, you have a very cynical political drama unfolding, too, where it's you're like watching white people be like, wait a minute. All of our slaves are leaving. We're the victims here. Like, right. and there's something like so irreverent and like so like biting about that. Like, that's the movie that I wanted to see is sort of like using the. I mean, and she does at certain points, but like, I almost feel like using that that like outrageous sort of uh, parody white hubris uh, to her advantage, like is more interesting than like her having a vision and like them having to pause in the woods so they can make a left and not run into the group of horses. That's like in front of the bridge or about to wipe them out. Yeah. Let me address both points. Yeah. There is a scene that I, I think is almost like unintentionally comedic or maybe it is intentional where Jennifer Nettles as like the matriarch of this slave owning family, who's just like, you know, blitzed out of her mind on vermouth, like rallies 
like all of these other like white racists who were like, you, you need to pay us restitution because Harriet Tubman helped all our slaves run away. And she's just like, I am the real victim here. We are all victims of this woman. And all of the guys are like, wait, she's right. <laughs> and it's like, is this, are we sure this is what we need to spend our time on? But it is a way of showing a kind of white fragility I think. Right. No, and I think it finding white fragility both like terrifying but also kind of yes. funny. Right. I think the other possibility is that this is not so covertly like a faith movie. And this is it's sort of odd for me to want this as a person who's never had any faith of any kind, but I think it would be weirdly subversive if Harriet, instead of just being like, you doubt me? What about all the actions? My, the unimpeachable right. movies worth of actions I've done. What about like, you doubt me, you doubt God? Um, because these premonitions that she's having come from, this is a true to life thing. Harriet Tubman sustained like a very traumatic brain injury that caused her to have visions and spells, which she felt were uh, premonitory at some points. Um, is that historically but, accurate? It is. Okay. But I don't think it I don't think it was like go right now. <laughs> right. No, I think you're totally right. Like if this movie, like this movie just like won't commit to being like a weird uh 10 commandments, which it really just should be. Just do it, be. man. I'm Yeah, fine. like have her cross that river and like have the waters part. Like don't just have her wade through it. You know, right. I think committing to that, you know, the myth making of it makes more sense or commit to like the hyper realistic, you know, oh, this is, you know, but then give us a sense of like the time of this thing. I didn't buy it too. People who are that uh, faithful tend to talk about and conceptualize their faithfulness in ways Indeed. that, yeah, that uh, often get pushed out of more secular Hollywood fare. And it just feels like that is an integral part of her character that actually might make this, even if it seems religious or conservative somehow by modern standards, like put it in there. Cause otherwise you just have a, a woman who's uh, infallible, just yes. completely infallible. <laughs> right. Just the, the hand of God um, right. without mentioning God. Right. Which, so what, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, commit more to that. Like that is, I maybe that was the concern that it would alienate a secular viewership or something like that. But I think you have to run that risk in order to make her seem more than like a. Here's why she should be on the twenty dollar bill. Haven't you seen the film? This movie is just a little constricted, or a lot constricted, by being an Oscar Beatty biopic, and um. Where does that come through the loudest? Like when P when Leslie Odom Jr. is like, maybe you're right. It's 1858, but it does feel like soon we might have to have a civil war. It's like, okay, <laughs> come on. <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> come I thought on. it was lazy when at, at any point in a movie set in historical time, when a character looks at another character and goes, these are dangerous times. Like yeah. it loses me. Cause like okay. nobody, nobody says that. I mean, are, are, are these dangerous times? Possibly. Currently, Currently these feel like dangerous times. Incredibly nobody, dangerous times, I think. You know, but like when I... It that way. 
as if the Civil War is some sort of Easter egg to this movie uh, was pretty silly. And then, of course, the scene where they're running to the boat and they're like, did you hear about the fugitive slave law being passed? Like that felt like like James Spader running around in Lincoln. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah, I think the rating for this one is honestly very easy. It is quintessential good bad. It lands right in that kind of Invictus or theory of everything biopic. That, That's not like, to say that there's a sport portrayed that you need to know the rules for that you don't. I just want that to be clear. Right. I know that that's our Invictus reference. We typically use Invictus to talk about not knowing the rules of rugby. Today, I'm using it to talk about a fairly uh, contrived and some and somewhat effective hagiography. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty quintessential good-bad. Uh, has all the trappings of good-bad. Has, like, singing at unnecessary times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have... It has a central character that is in every frame, but we know very little about. Um, you know, it has that 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 massive score. Uh, Blanchard's going fl- for it, as he always does. Oh, you love to see it, you know. But I Even think in this it. one, and you love to hear it. But I think <laughs> in this one, it kind of does a lot of the emotional lifting, like especially in the scene where she's like, "My name now is." Harriet Tubman. <laughs> right. I asked this of Christina, and I, I, I kind of wish I, I would have followed up more, but she was like, I want to see more relationship-based movies from Casey Lemons, whether like romantic or about friendship. And um, I, I know Casey Lemons herself is a, a self-professed lover of, of melodramas, Um it could be in a rom-com. It could be a buddy comedy, uh, which is like the first hour of Talk to Me. But I, I'm with Christina. I would like to see more of that too. And what I would really love to see her get back to, um, and I want the industry to embrace this, is, is I don't know, being able to make more like creative fiction material. Just in case I have to run. Happy birthday to Casey Lemons. Uh, I know I, I appreciate that we've we've still been able to to keep going on the show, spotlighting black directors from time to time. Uh, I've been thinking about Bill Duke. I've been thinking about uh, Gina Prince Bythewood. Um, there's uh, there's some careers out there that uh, I'd love to get into in 2021. But um, thank you, man. I'm always down for it, man. I like to watch cool. movies. I like to talk about them. <laughs> Happy to continue doing both. You said it. <laughs> <laughs>